Okay. Okay, I do have uh, slides to walk us through. Um, I didn't have slides for the first section, but I'll finish off the first section, and then we get to the second section, we'll get to the slides here. Um, but yes, on um, page two, uh, we were in the midst of uh, talking about what biblical counseling is not and what biblical, biblical counseling is. And uh, once again, just to encourage you, we have the recording from last week's session on the website. Um, so you can go to the website, get the recording from last week, and we even have the electronic versions of these documents that you can download uh, from the website as well. So if you'd like to get caught up, you certainly can. Um, but going back to uh, B1, biblical counseling is the following things. It, it's, it's, um, it discerns desire, desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. And so the idea of biblical counseling, we use the Bible to help even analyze our own hearts, um, even to assess our own hearts and to figure out the ways, uh, that the places that we need to grow and the, the places we need to change. And by the way, before I go any further, um, I think this is a class where it's good to take notes. And, um, and I, I was talking to Brett and he was suggesting that maybe we put up, maybe next week when we do this, we put up more tables so that everyone has a table to write on. Um, kind of the VBS setup, is everyone in favor of that? Yeah. Okay, so then maybe, maybe we'll uh, start doing that uh, starting next Sunday. Um, but yeah, so B2 then is that biblical counseling uses God's word by the Holy Spirit to change desires, thinking, and behavior. One of the great uh, promises of um, our faith is that once we make our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason why we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, Ephesians not only tells us that we're sealed in the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit will help us to grow. You know, the Holy Spirit helps us to be what we call sanctified, to grow into the image of, of God's Son. Now, the Holy Spirit does not work apart from God's Word. God's Word is our standard of truth. And in fact, God's Word came to us by the Spirit. So the idea that biblical, biblical counseling uses God's Word is that God's Word, we know, is the standard of truth. And it, it not only is used by the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's Word, but it also works in our heart if we apply it to our lives. All right. So the idea is that as you learn God's truth, you want to be meditating on it, you want to be studying it, you want to be thinking about it, you want to be seeking how to apply it, um, all those kinds of things. And that's all part of the, um, the, the process of studying God's Word. I have Ephesians um, 4, 22 to 24 listed there. We're going to show that verse in a, a little bit uh, later tonight, so we'll take a look at that. But we're going to get there pretty soon, too, on Sunday morning as, uh, as we continue on in Ephesians. Um, and then point number three there, biblical counseling seeks the sanctification of the Christian into Christ-likeness for the glory of God. Um, Romans 8.28 is the great uh, verse on God's sovereignty. Um, if you ever want a verse to memorize, to remind yourself that God is in complete control, Romans 8.28 is that verse. For we know all things come together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. But the very next verse goes to show that the purpose of God, God the, God's purpose is that he predestined you to be conformed into the image of God's Son. See, what we know is true from all going all the way back to the book of Genesis is that we're all created in the image of God. You see that in chapter 1. We're all created in the image of God, but that image has been tarnished by sin. Um, we, we've tarnished that image, and once we've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, now our goal is to be conformed back not only to the image of God, but the image of God as seen through his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the perfect image, which, by the way, that's uh, another argument that Jesus Christ is God, right? If we're created in the image of God, why would we want to be conformed into the image of anyone else aside from God? But we're being conformed into the 
image of his son. So this is, these are the goals of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is really to help discern our hearts. It's to look into our hearts and, and understand those kinds of desires that God wants us to have. Um, it's using God's word and trusting in the, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help change those desires, thinking, and behavior. And we'll see that um, uh, real soon, a little bit later. And then uh, biblical counseling seeks the sanctification of a Christian into Christ's likeness for the glory of God. So as you grow in your Christ likeness, God gets the glory. Um, we, Gail just mentioned it uh, this morning. You know, we're, uh, I mean, just now, I didn't say it this morning, but just now, <laughs> said we're all knuckleheads. Um, I hadn't used it, but I haven't said that before, but you know what? He's right. We are all knuckleheads. Um, we're all depraved sinners. Uh, we are not worthy of God's grace. Amen. Um, and so we are saved by God's grace, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his love and mercy poured out upon us. And so when we are saved, we, are, we not only are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called, but when we walk and we start to grow in, in our Christian walk, it's God who gets the glory. We glorify God in the world when they see Christ in you, when they see the change in you. And so people that know you from before the time you were saved, they should be able to see a difference between what they knew then and what they know now. They should be able to look at you and say, you're a really different person. And for Christians who have matured, Christians who I know that, that um, they're, you know, they, they've got a hunger for the word of God, they've got a hunger to be able to serve. And by the way, those missions trips, great opportunity to serve. I just want to say this. Um, I've been on a couple of trips to the Czech Republic. Um, Alice and I have been to Ukraine. We've been to other parts of, of the world. And um, wherever we go, obviously, you know, we think about the, the money that's needed to help support that. And obviously that's important. Um, but what's most important, more important than, than even the money that people provide to help support these trips is just the time they put in to participate in them. You know, it, it is amazing when you go to these foreign countries, um, you don't realize how well equipped you are actually to help people. You know, when you go there and, and um, it's, it's like ground zero and, you know, people that haven't been exposed to God and, and you have this opportunity to be able to minister to them, you know, the, the, the greatest gift to them is that you're there, that, that you're there. You're making a connection to them. You're showing them that, yes, I came from a prosperous country, but I took time out of my own schedule. I took vacation time because I want to be here to serve you and be able to share the word of God with you. That's how important this is to me. And that, that gives a marvelous uh, testimony. I just wanted to, to, to add that. But um, that's all part of our, um, just those opportunities to serve, those opportunities for us to grow. And the beautiful thing about those missions trips is that uh, you, you go to serve, but um, oftentimes what I found is that um, I ended up benefiting even more than the people that I served um, because you, you just grow through that experience. So the, these are, those are wonderful testimonies to have. So that's um, just a, a quick summary of what biblical counseling is versus what biblical counseling is not. Is there any questions at this point? Any questions or comments? All right, so let's go ahead and move to uh, section two. Section two, and this is really the theological foundation of biblical counseling. I want to go here because there is a lot of approaches that people take to counseling. Um, there's obviously a lot of secular approaches. There's even a lot of different approaches that Christians may take to counseling. And what I want to establish in your mind is the theological basis, meaning this is how we know that the, the Bible and, and that the Bible is not only sufficient to help us counsel our own problems and counsel the problems of others, but, but this is the process by which we go about it. This is how we make sure that we're, we are applying the Bible correctly. 
you know, because you guys know that there's a lot of churches out there where the pastors or, or the preachers are taking God's word out of context to support any kind of message they wanted to say. All right. And, and if you do that, you can basically make the Bible say whatever you want it to say and apply it to whatever situation you want it to apply it to. Uh, but really what we're in the business of doing is understanding God's word in context. And often when you understand in context, it actually is even more powerful when you apply it to people's lives. And uh, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at uh, this next slide, the foundational presupposition. By presupposition, I'm saying this is, this is uh, what we assume to be true going into this. And this is foundational, that the inspired, inspired meaning that, uh, that it's God who breathed out the, the word of God, and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is totally sufficient to address any issue. Now, let me clarify what we mean by any issue. Um, if you have a cold, if you have a physical issue, you know, if you have pains inside, um, you're not going to find the answer in the word of God. I mean, you, you need to go to a doctor. You need to go to a hospital. You need to get checked out. So I'm not saying that the word of God will address any issue physical, that, you know, physical, internal that, that you may have. Um, there are there, there are, is a place for, for doctors that you want to be able to go to, to be able to take a look at you. And, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's there. I don't want to pretend like the Bible um, replaces our need for medical help. But when I say it is totally sufficient to address any issue, I'm talking about any issue that has any spiritual consequence. Um, talking about our day-to-day -day, um, issues in terms of decisions you make, what job to take, where to move. Uh, you know, you're going through financial struggles. You're going through personal struggles. You have uh, people who are sick. You, you know, you're, you're uncertain about what tomorrow is going to bring. You, you know, these are all spiritual issues. And I would say even if you do have a physical issue, for instance, um, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, uh, obviously that's a physical issue, but there's going to be a spiritual issue in terms of how you respond to that. Right? There's a spiritual issue with regards to how you respond to that. In fact, um, John Piper wrote a great book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And uh, in that book, he goes to show that, you know what, you can use your cancer for the glory of God. You, even if you're suffering from something like cancer, you can use that opportunity to show people that, you know what, you still have a hope that cannot be taken away. And that's powerful, right? You know, yeah, I, may, I have cancer and, and my life may end, but I know where I'm going. I know I have a hope beyond this life. And so that's, that's a great example of biblical counseling, the, the hope that we have in the future, being able to counsel how we respond to those kinds of events. Whereas um, a lot of people, they go through that kind of um, situation and it can absolutely break them. Um, I, I think of an example of like when I watch TV and, and I remember seeing this, uh, the, the reports of this uh, devastating tornado that twisted through one of those Midwestern states. And uh, they had talked to one of the families whose houses, house was just torn apart. And uh, they spoke to the mother. And obviously, when your house is taken away, there's a lot of personal uh, attachment to that home. There's a lot of memories attached to that home. There's a lot of things in that home that you can't replace. Um, and uh, they, they spoke to the mother of this family, and, and she was in tears. Now, the family was safe. You know, no one had passed from the family. But she was torn apart over losing that home and losing the memories that are attached to that home. You know, whereas I remember... Um, kind of a similar situation in Los Angeles. There was someone at our church um, whose house was burned by one of the brush fires that, uh, that came through Los Angeles a few years ago. And um, his response was very, very different. He, he's, he said to, uh, to, to my pastor, he said, you know, pastor, the good news is that uh, my permanent home is still intact. Oh. That's biblical counseling. 
You know, that's taking the truth of God's word. And you, you have two situations that are equally tragic in a physical and material sense, but a spiritual reality makes all the difference in terms of how you respond to it. So even if there is a physical issue that is not directly addressed by the scriptures, there is a spiritual element to it in terms of how you respond. That's biblical counseling. All right. um, so the verse I have quoted here, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. And the, the Greek word there is literally breathed out, God breathed. Um, it is, is God breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You remember as we're going through Ephesians, um, you may remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. 2, 8 talks about, for by grace through faith we have been saved, right? Um, and, uh, and then you get to verse 10, and it talks about how we are the workmanship of Christ. And uh, we, are, we were designed in order to walk in the good works that have been prepared beforehand by God. We were designed to walk in the good works prepared beforehand by God. And what we see there in 2 Timothy 17 is that the man of God is, and when he says maybe adequate, it means it's fully equipped, it's, it's sufficient, um, you're not lacking in anything. You are equipped for every good work that God has called you to do. Uh, now, the, the man of God here, as, as Paul is writing to Timothy, um, man of God is, um, is typically referring to one who um, is in the position of Paul or Timothy, you know, the, the one who's a spokesperson, the one who's a, a preacher or a teacher or a pastor or an apostle. Um, but if it's true for the man of God, it's true for all of God's people, right? So I would say if this is true for the man of God, it's true for all of God's people. Right, so we, we get that from 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Now let me show you this uh, pyramid that you also have in your handout. Um, there is a pyramid, and it may not be, it's right, let me see, what page is it on? Yeah, it's on page four. There's a pyramid that's on uh, page four, and uh, section B, uh, 2B, is uh, the process of developing our theology, the process of developing our theology. And it's very important that we have our minds wrapped around this. Um, because if you understand this process, um, then you will be on the, uh, on the road to being able to apply the, the scriptures correctly into other people's lives, to understand it in context and to apply it correctly. And, and you'll see this. This is really meant as a foundation from level one to, to level five. We, we start in level one, which is what we call the canonical scriptures. Um, the canon just meaning the book, um, everything that we know belong, belonging to the Bible, all 66 books that are within the canon. Um, and what I have written here, we identify the canonical scriptures through the various fields of valid biblical criticism. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, there's, uh, I don't want to go into too much details, but there was a process that our church fathers went through in terms of um, collecting um, all the manuscripts that contained the word of God and, and assessing which ones belonged in the canon and which ones didn't. Um, that, that's a process that I won't go into here, um, but we know that at this point in time, the 66 books of the Bible that we have, are the 66 books that should be there. Um, there is no book that should be there that's not there, and there's no book that's in there that shouldn't be there. Um, it's been through a very rigorous process, and we can be confident in the books that we have identified as being part of the Bible. Um, it, sometimes if you open up a Roman Catholic Bible, the Roman Catholic Bible will have additional books that we call the Apocrypha. Um, there's a set of um, over a dozen books, many of them, I think all of them, written in between um, the Old and the New Testament times, um, in between. We call that the Apocrypha, and that's never been um, widely considered by the church fathers to actually be a part of Scripture. They were just books that were helpful 
You know, kind of like how we might read certain theological books or certain books written by certain pastors and whatnot. Um, but at some point after the Reformation, they got together and said, okay, we're going to add these to the canon. We're going to add these to, to being included as part of Scripture. Um, well, that's not a decision that man can just make flippantly like that. You can't just decide, okay, this is now we're going to start adding these books in because it's not us who decides it. It's God. And really the process was as, as our church fathers looked at each book that we have inside the Bible, the question is, the question wasn't, which one are we going to identify? Which one are we going to decide is going to belong to the Bible? You know, which one fits our, uh, you, know, our, uh, you know, our agenda? Which one fits what we want to accomplish? No, that's not the way it worked. The way it worked was, which one are we convinced was actually inspired by God? Which one came to us through a real prophet of God? Which one really does speak God's word to us? And that was the process. And, and it took many generations to, to really firm, to, to cement these 66 books. But I think even if you look through the church fathers, it is very consistent. And there was a few books that were in question for a while, but the fact that they lasted the test of time and were finally um, conceded as the word of God uh, really speaks to um, its, uh, its credibility. Um, so level one is just identifying what the scriptures are, what the word of God truly is. And we have that in the Bible with those 66 books and nothing else. You know, so we wouldn't throw the Book of Mormon in there. We wouldn't, not the doctrines and covenants or the Pearl of Great Price or, you know, any of the additional books that the Roman Catholic Church um, has affirmed. And, um, and I'll just say this, Jehovah's Witness also, they, they have a Bible with the same 66 books, but they deliberately distort several verses in there in order to hide the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Um, so that, that's an example where, you know, they've gone off track, and I wouldn't consider what they have to be the canonical scriptures. So that's level one. That's uh, the canonical scriptures. And level two, oops, let's see. Um, level two is uh, what I have is exegesis slash Bible interpretation slash hermeneutics. And uh, Terry is teaching the hermeneutics class on Wednesday the idea of, of proper Bible interpretation. And it's really just following common sense principles. When you, the more you learn about hermeneutics, the more you realize, oh yeah, this is this is how we approach trying to understand anything, right? You know, if you're to if you're to pick up something that was written in the 1800s and you're going to read it, you're not you're, you understand you're not going to fully understand it unless you know something about the author, unless you understand something about the historical context. You know, what, what was the culture that that person was writing from? And that's really what we're seeking to do with the Bible is trying to understand all of those things and, and, to, and to interpret it uh, through the lens in which it was intended to be understood. So that's all hermeneutics is. And so when I say level two is this um, exegesis and really the difference between exegesis and Bible interpretation. Exegesis means that you can go to the original Greek and Hebrew. You know, you can actually look at the original languages. For, for you guys, um, you can go to your Bibles, you know, your English Bibles. And uh, the translations, um, you know, there, there may be some disagreements here and there with various verses, but you can get um, a lot of deep theology just from your English translations. But it's by following proper um, Bible principles of interpretation. Um, and to, to give you an example, um, you know, it's like uh, this example comes up often, you, you know, the story of David and Goliath. Um, David and Goliath, when we read that story, we understand that to, to be David and Goliath. And David uh, was a man after God's own heart. Goliath was someone um, who, who wanted to um, take away uh, you know, the nation of Israel and, uh, and, and destroy them. 
And uh, David, trusting in God, was able to um, take down Goliath. And we know David would end up being the king of Israel. He would uh, receive the, the promise that one of his sons would reign in the kingdom forever. Um, there's a lot of people that will take that story and say, well, David was, was like um, Jesus Christ, and Goliath was like your, your sin, and, and he conquered sin, conquered death, and, and, and turned it into an allegory um, and make it communicate what it's not really meant to communicate. Right. So we have to be careful. You know, a lot of scriptures can be taken out of context. Or last Sunday when I talked about Philippians 4.13, 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, that is a popular verse to use for prosperity purposes. You know, that whatever you want to pursue, whatever you want to do, God will strengthen you to do that. Well, when you look at that in context, that's not what it's saying. You look at that in context. You know, Paul was making the case that, look, I've learned how to get along with little. I've learned how to get along with much. You know, whatever the situation is, he said, I've learned the secret to contentment. In other words, I have learned to endure whatever situation God has sovereignly put into my life. That's what that verse means. You know, and so we want to be sure we're following the right kind of Bible interpretation principles to understand that verse before we start to apply it um, into other people's lives. Does that make sense? So that, that's level two, really having the proper interpretation of principles of the Bible. And, and that's crucial. That's crucial because if you go astray there on level two, if you take this approach that, um, that well, okay, what does the Bible mean to me? What does the Bible mean to you? What does the Bible mean to you? Well, now level three, four, and five, you can just throw it out the window because now you can just make it say whatever you want to say. And you're not really applying God's word the way it was intended to be applied. Um, level three is what we call biblical theology. Um, from the exegesis of a canonical text, we engage in the discipline of biblical theology by form formulating propositional doctrinal statements. Now, that's a very technical explanation. What, what does that mean? Well, for each book that we read in the Bible, um, you, you learn something about um, God and who he is and how he operates, right? Um, in the book of Genesis, if you wanted to study the Messiah in the book of Genesis, there are some things that you can learn from the book of Genesis, Right? Um, what, what's the first uh, messianic prophecy given in the book of Genesis? 3.15. Yeah, 3.15. You know, 3.15, that the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. Uh, and then later, you know, as, as you, you go on, there's, there's really not as much written in Genesis compared to other books. But you do get to the end of the book of Genesis and you hear the blessings and the curses, uh, really the blessings from, from Jacob um, renamed to Israel towards his sons. And he reveals that Judah is where the, where the king is going to come from. You know, so from Genesis, if you want to do a study of Christ, you would know that there was a prophecy that the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. And, and you also know at the end of the book of Genesis that this, uh, th this Messiah would come out of the line of Judah. Um, now, is that everything we know about the Messiah? No. But biblical theology is the, the idea is that from each book, what is it that we understand about certain topics from that book? What do we understand about certain topics from that book? You know, what do we understand about salvation from, say, the book of Ephesians? Well, we, we know that Paul emphasizes the mercy and the grace and the love of God, right? But he, he doesn't get into justification by faith the way he, doesn't, he, he gets into it with the book of Romans. So each of these books kind of teach us a little bit something different about each one of these topics. And the idea is that as we learn from these books, we, we, we can create statements that help us to understand what is being taught in that book about certain topics. And then systematic theology takes it one step further. Um, the propositions of biblical theology are correlated topically to produce a systematic theology. And I quoted Acts 20, 27, where Paul tells the Ephesian elders, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. 
So if you want to declare the whole purpose of God, if you want to be able to help um, explain the entire purpose of the Bible, the idea is that you have to have an understanding of the entire Bible from beginning to end. So going back to the topic of the Messiah, if we want to do a study on the Messiah, you know, you could do it from Genesis. You'll have a little bit of information. You can go to Exodus. You'll have a little bit more information. The rest of the Old Testament, you'll have a little bit more information. But the idea of a systematic theology is what does the entire Bible tell us about that topic? So systematic theology helps us to organize what we understand about certain key doctrines as taught by the entire Bible from start to end. So that's what a systematic theology is. And there's a lot of good systematic theology books. Um, there's, uh, there was one that was published by um, John MacArthur just uh, a couple of years ago um, called Biblical Doctrine. I think that's what it's called. And then the one that uh, the, the text that we used to use in seminary quad is uh, one written by Wayne Grudem um, called An Introduction to Systematic Theology. Also a very good book. Now, systematic theologies, um, these are um, huge books. They provide a lot of helpful information, but again, we have to remember it was written by men. So as you read any kind of systematic theology, it can be very, very helpful, um, but uh, you're also reading something that was produced by men. But that leads us into um, level five. Level five, by building upon a thorough systematic theology, we may arrive at practical theological conclusions about life. So this is the final level, and this is where we are able to apply the scriptures into our life. And the reason why we need all these levels um, is because, you know, we, we can easily, um, for instance, uh, you know, if all we did was study the Old Testament, we can easily start to think that we need to look for a temple to offer up animal sacrifices, right? You know, but by knowing the entire Bible, we understand that um, that was a part of the Mosaic law that was ended with Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ set up a new covenant. He, he, set up, he set up a new covenant that we are to follow, where we are to, um, really, the sacrifice is our lives. We, we live, our, our life is a living sacrifice. That's in Romans 12, 1. Um, so we, we want to be able to understand all the scriptures, but that leads us into understanding how we are to live our lives today. You know, and there's, um, there's a lot of denominations that will get this confused. And I'll give you an example. Um, anyone know any uh, Seventh-day Adventists? Anyone ever been part of the Seventh-day Adventist? Okay. You know a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of them, at least the ones I've um, been in contact with, um, they won't eat pork. Do you know why they won't eat pork? Because the Old Testament outlaws pork. Did you know the book of Acts says that there is no food that's unclean? And it says explicitly, so basically you can eat pork now? Okay, but, um, but they, they get confused. Um, so they live out their lives saying, no, we can't eat pork and you're in sin if you eat pork, even though the New Testament says you can eat pork. You know, so that's, that's an example of, of, of not having a, you know, being unstable in terms of your grasp of what the entire Bible says. Yeah, there was a time in which the people of God were told not to eat pork. Um, but that, that was all part of the Mosaic law. That was all part of how they lived in Old Testament times. Does that make sense? Um, yes. Oh no! no I mean, you, you can you can absolutely counsel people. So I mean, this is um, this is not to say that um, you need to be an expert on every single book, uh, but you do want to continue growing in your knowledge of, of Jesus Christ and the Bible, you know, God's Word. As as you're studying it, um, as you're listen, listening to sermons, as you're studying it with others, um, you're going to learn a lot um, just from those studies. And, um, and, and even, you know, the, the New Testament, you know, here's the thing that we can be safe about. If you read a command in the New Testament addressed to Christians, you can assume it still applies to us because we are Christians just like the New Testament Christians are. Where we have to be careful is when you go back into the Old Testament. 
And in fact, I know, um, you know, Terry went through a discussion on dispensations, you know, this idea that different periods of time, God operated in different ways with his people. You know, we, you know, at one time there was sacrifice being offered. Today, there's no sacrifices being offered. You know, it's just a very simple example. Um, but yeah, it's an understanding that, that um, you know, it's, it's, it's an understanding that if you're, you're reading from the New Testament, um, you, you can trust those commandments that are given to us. You still want to be able to understand it in context. Um, but uh, especially want to be careful when you're going back to the Old Testament and trying to apply those laws to us today. Uh, we want to be careful about that. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Well, there's something about scavengers in the water, like uh, dirty fish or like carp. Say carp maybe isn't a good field, but that's not mentioned in the Bible. It's just talking about fish, scavenger fish. Scavenger fish. Well done. Do you know what verse you're you're no, talking about exactly? That might go back to the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, that's probably going back to the Old Testament Mosaic Law and, and all those regulations about what they should and shouldn't eat. Um, but I mean, it, when you get to the Book of Acts, it says there's no food that's unclean, and uh, so at that point, um, yeah, there's uh, you know I don't believe those regulations would be applied to us. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you read the book of Colossians, um, the struggle at the at, at the church in Colossae was exactly that. There was all kinds of people saying, "Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't do this. Don't do that." And uh, and Paul ended up saying, "This is of no profit. Um, this is of no profit." Um, so that's uh, I, I think that's um, that that's one of those books that addresses that issue where people were creating way more regulations than what was necessary for us as as believers. Um, but um, but but for, let me let me go ahead and move on to that. That could be a, a big discussion in of itself. But I would say just in general, the principles that there's no food that's unclean. Now, of course, we want to be discerning, right? You know, you're not going to you know you're not going to go to um, you know just like uh, with the coronavirus breaking out. Uh, Alice and I have been talking about what's happening in China, and they have these wet markets, right? Um, where there's a lot of wild, uh, wild animals being butchered and, and uh, you know, meats everywhere and, and there's a lot of cross-contamination and stuff like that. I mean, okay, don't, don't do that, all right? You know, that's, uh, that's just common sense. But, um, but yeah, there's, um, the, the, the regulations on food are, are no longer there. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul makes the um, case about, um, uh, you know, not putting a stumbling block in front of a brother, yeah. he talks about food sacrificed to idols. And he makes a point, look, you're, you're free to eat whatever you want. You know, but don't eat food sacrificed to idols, not because that food is, is going to curse you or anything like that, but because you're going to be a stumbling block to someone else. You know, so just best not to, not to eat it. You know, if they put food in front of you, he said, if they put food in front of you, don't even ask where it came from. <laughs> he, says, he says, don't even ask. You know, but if, if they say it's been sacrificed to an idol, don't take it because it's going to look like to them you're engaging in that idol worship. Yeah, I mean, those are artificial. I mean, and we're talking about people that don't know God, and, uh, and they've got their own reasons, which are based upon a false view of God and of life and all that. I mean, here, here's the thing. You go back to Genesis 1. Um, who is created in the image of God? Man. Um, which animals um, outside of man are created in the image of God? None. None. You know, and, uh, and even from the beginning, we're told to have dominion, that 
Man is to populate the earth and have dominion over the earth, over the creation. Um, you know, which in itself, that's another, that, that's another biblical counseling principle. You know, when we, when we talk about, um, you know, dealing with people that elevate animals to, to being like their lives are just as important as men, well, no, they're not. It's not the same thing. You know, when people, when people talk about abortion, they'll say, well, you're emphasizing the, the killing of innocent life, and that's just like killing innocent animals. No, it's not the same. It's not the same. And we know that from the Bible. We know that from the Bible. Everybody right. knows that. Yeah. Well, everyone who knows the Bible knows yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. Well, I mean, with the abortion part, they know better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any other comments or questions? All right. So here are some implications from the theological pyramid. Moving on to 2C. Implications from the theological pyramid. Uh, level five, which is biblical counseling. That's where biblical counseling is, the practical theology. Level five without levels one to four is not biblical counseling. Level five without levels one to four, and just looking at this again, level five, if you take out any of these levels, level one, two, three, or four, it's not biblical counseling. Um, so in other words, if, if, you, if you take out the scriptures or you take out the proper interpretation, if you take out a proper understanding of what a book teaches or what the Bible teaches, if, if you ignore all of that, you can basically treat the Bible as being almost like a, a spiritual wisdom guide. And you can pull out any scripture and say, OK, I'm going to make this mean whatever I want it to. And you can take a Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me and tell your kid, guess what? God wants you, wants to strengthen you to do whatever you want to do. And that's not biblical counseling. Yeah, so we, we, we understand that. So levels, level five without levels one to four is not biblical counseling. Um, biblical counseling is not a generic system with scripture sprinkled on top. So there's a lot of systems of counseling in the world. And, um, and a lot of churches take what's called an integrationist approach where they adopt basically what psychology teaches. And then they try to sprinkle scriptures on top of it. You know, so these are psychological teachings, and here's some scriptures that, that, that seem to support that. Well, that's not biblical counseling, because you're basically taking a whole different worldview and then trying to make scripture fit that. Um, too many people without theological training are telling the church how to change and grow, but they have invalid, unbiblical models. Um, in, in this day and age, um, a lot of times people view the church as being a business. And of course, in, in some sense, it is in the sense that we've got to manage, um, we've got to manage our books, you know, our, our you know, our, you know, our, our budget and what we're going to spend money on and, and how we're coming, um, how the actuals compare to the forecast and all that kinds of stuff. But um, at the end of the day, the, the, the church is, is not about making as much money as possible. It is not a business. And there's been a lot of people that will borrow from the corporate world, principles from the corporate world about how to grow a business and then bring them into the church and say, okay, this is how we grow a business. And a great example is um, there was a Methodist church. There was news um, recently, just like a month ago, I think, uh, even less than that. There was a Methodist church um, who had closed down. They decided to close down for like two months. Um, there were there were a church uh, of the, the numbers were dwindling. It was mostly um, people in their 60s and 70s that were within the church, 60 and up um, ages. And uh, so they decided to close down the church and they encouraged everyone who was in the church to find another church to uh, call home, to, to go and find another church. And their plan was after a couple months, they would reopen and rebrand themselves towards a younger audience. They, they wanted to appeal to a younger audience because they figured that the only way that they could grow is to, 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 to get rid of everyone who's 60 and above and then reopen with a brand new fresh image so that they can attract more younger people to the church. Okay, that, that, is, um, 
that that is that that is that taking marketing principles, you know, that um, into the church and and what it's doing is it, it's it's ignoring what the church is really for, and that's for the edification of God's people. Um, so for that church, they've just taken a group of God's people and told them you need to go elsewhere because we're going to market to a younger group. And I tell you what, even if they reopen and they open to a younger group, they've already sent a message to that younger group that they're more important simply because they're younger. You know, and even so, even if they have some success in their church, that foundation that they reopened under, it was all under these corporate principles of business, making money, you know, being being more popular, being more hip, being more more, um, you know, seeker. Yeah. Seeker, seeker sensitive, seeker friendly, because I would say this, if a young person is going to refuse to come to a church because there's a lot of people who are 60 and up, that young person doesn't that young person doesn't belong in church. I mean, to, to me, that's, that's the mark of someone who doesn't understand what the church is for, doesn't understand the value that they can, they, they can gain from having other believers of all kinds of different ages. The older people help the younger people. Absolutely. Absolutely. How can they do um, that's because they've given into the marketing wisdom of the age. You know, because in companies, you know, in companies, when, when you're doing product marketing, you're trying to figure out, okay, who are we trying to appeal to? Who are we trying to advertise to? How can we attract their attention and stuff like that? And so it turns into just a marketing discussion. But church is not about marketing. Church is about shepherding. Church is about growing together. Church is about exalting and worshiping God. Um, so once they do that, they've already shown that their priorities is not in the word of God. Their priorities is just to be a, a big church with a lot of young people in it. No, no, I, I don't either. Any other comments or questions? Um, part C, for counseling to be considered biblical, Scripture must have active functional control over any methods of change and growth. So what does this mean? I mean, there are a lot of valid discussions within the church about programs that we should end, programs that we should start, things that we should consider doing. There's a, there's a lot of ways to have those discussions in a valid way. Uh, but we want to be sure that it's being held in submission to what the scriptures say. We want to be sure that it's held in submission to what the scriptures say. So whatever plans we get, we want to go to the Bible and ask the question, are, are, we, are we standing against the wisdom of God by doing this? And, and that example that I just gave, um, if someone was really obeying the word of God, they should have said, this is not how we do church. All right. Um, there's nothing wrong with talking about various ideas, but you always want to hold it to the light of Scripture. Okay, uh, two, uh, continuing the implications from the theological pyramid. So levels one to four without level five are incomplete and ineffective. Um, theology was never given in a vacuum. Um, this is to, to say that we don't just, um, we don't just make up our own theology. Uh, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes from a, a a study of scripture, a study of an understanding of what, what scripture teaches. Our job is not simply to dispense the word, but to minister the word. So biblical counseling is just not throwing verses at people. You know, when they're going through an issue, oh, here, here's a verse, okay, bye, right? Um, our job is to minister the word. You know, we, we not only show the word, but, but we, we, we work with them, we pray with them, we check up on them, we, um, we, we talk about application from those, uh, those scriptures. So there's a difference between just giving someone a verse and, and actually sitting down and coming alongside with them and ministering that word into their life, um, showing them how it can be applied. And C, we have been in a battle for the Bible since the beginning. The reason why that's here is, as I've said, um, there's a lot of people that don't believe the Bible is sufficient for all that it says it's sufficient for. 
Um, there's a lot of people that believe, okay, well, yeah, the, the scriptures are good for some spiritual guidance and advice, but if you really want help with your psyche, if you really want help with some mental issues, you really need to go to a psychologist. You really need to go to a psychiatrist. You know, you really need to go to um, these kind of mental health experts. Um, and that's another way of saying the Bible is not sufficient. That's just another way of saying the Bible is not sufficient. And not only that, but um, protecting... The idea that the Bible is inerrant, that it is perfect, that has been something that's been under attack since the beginning as well. That has been under attack since the beginning as well. In fact, I was just talking to uh, Gail about what's going on with the um, Southern Baptist Convention. Um, there are some other pastors in the valley that are starting to take notice and, uh, and talking about uh, taking some serious action. Um, because what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention is that they're endorsing, they're endorsing ideas and thoughts that undermine the authority and, and the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, so this battle has been waging from the beginning, and it's, it's always going to be waged. And part of biblical counseling is us standing on the scriptures and saying, this Bible is perfect. It is inerrant, and it is applicable for every day and every age. You know, the, the rise of the gay and, gay and homosexual uh, movement, the LGBTQ, there are a lot of churches that are conceding to that. Um, that, that are allowing, um, that are endorsing gay marriage, that are allowing um, people who are of, um, of this group to be ministers and whatnot without having to repent of, of those sins. And the way that's being explained is that, oh, this is a different age. This is, you know, the, the, the Bible only talked about two genders, but we're more advanced now. We have multiple genders, and we understand that, you know, God created this way and this and that. Well, that's just another way of saying that the Bible is not inerrant. You know, that the Bible is not sufficient, that the Bible is not authoritative. Um, and a movement of people saying, you know what, we, can, we should allow uh, females to, to, to preach to the church, to start um, going up on Sunday mornings to, to preach to the congregation, despite what the Bible says. And what they'll say is, oh, well, Jesus never said that specifically. That only came from Paul. And you know what the message there is that, oh, the words of Paul are not as authoritative as the words of Jesus. So even though Paul had the Holy Spirit um, as, as given to him by God to, to write what he wrote, yeah, it's, 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 it's less authoritative. You know, so now we're, we're getting into the um, comparing um, levels of authority within the Bible. And it's just convenient because they, they don't see that Jesus ever said anything about homosexuality. Which, by the way, um, Jesus acknowledged the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, yeah. He acknowledged the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know exactly why they were destroyed. You know, so I would even say that that's a, a, false, uh, a false statement from them. But their goal is not accurate interpretation. Their goal is to twist the scriptures to support whatever agenda you know, they've got. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Thomas Jefferson made his own Bible? Like yeah, he did. He did. His own Bible? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, and, and that's, that's happened too. So Thomas Jefferson, he had his own Jefferson Bible. And, and there's a, a lot of um, what I'll call theological liberals um, did this. You know, there was, um, there, there was a movement called the, the Search for the Historical Christ. If you've heard about this, the search for what is the search for historical Christ? They brought theologians from different uh, kind of denominations and uh, and people and and they basically walked through the miracles and works of Jesus Christ. And um, each one of them had like a, a colored card that they would hold up to indicate whether they think this was definitely done by Jesus Christ. This was probably done by Jesus Christ. This probably wasn't done by Jesus Christ or this definitely was not done by Jesus Christ. So they're actually reading the gospel books and they're voting on what really was and was not done by Jesus Christ. What scientific evidence they have? None. It was just based upon feeling. They would listen and go, oh, that doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. Mm -hmm. uh, no, that, that's a little bit too extreme. That's a little bit too, you know, that miracle is, is way off the charts. You know, that, that didn't happen. 
that's all they did. And so, so it basically turned into, into, into account. And, and the result of that is that, okay, here is what we can be confident of, you know, that, that Jesus really did. And the rest of it, you know, so they had color coding just based upon those sections. And, and that's, that's, that's what happened. Well, today's um, session, um, I'm going to bring this to um, a little bit of a, a close because it's already 7.15. I don't want to take us too long. Um, it was going to be short today anyway because of the wonderful presentation about the Oaxaca trip. Um, I'll stop here, and then um, next time we gather, we'll, we'll walk through some of the examples of, uh, of systematic theology and why this is important. So this will give you a, a view into what systematic theology is and some of the lessons that we draw from it um, that are very important towards the foundation of biblical counseling. Um, any other comments or questions at this time? All right. Um, let me go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer.